Fantasy-animation.org is a website with a difference. It is not-for-profit and it's run entirely by academics and professional animators. And this means that whether you are reading our latest blog or accessing our latest podcast, thanks for downloading by the way, you can be sure that you are getting the most up-to-date and informed commentary on the colliding worlds of fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. Whether you are a budding animator yourself, a student of fantasy or animation, or just someone who wants to learn more about the history and theory behind these overlapping media, mediums and genres, why not find out more at fantasy-animation.org or subscribe to our various social media threads on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Reddit, at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. While you're at it, subscribe to the podcast, give us a star rating and better yet, a quick written review as well. It all helps to make the visibility of our project even stronger and attract more like-minded people like yourself to our growing network of fans. For now, do enjoy the show. Hi everyone, Alex here. Just a quick bit of context before the start of this episode. This was recorded live at the BFI Library, uh, a special episode as part of their anime season. Um, And we talk about the film Your Name, obviously, coming up on the podcast. Um, So you're going to hear Chris and I introduce ourselves to the room, um, do a little bit more background context than we would normally do on the podcast about who we are and, and what kind of our role on the podcast is and then we'll launch into a discussion of of anime more generally and then your name so it functions kind of like a normal episode but as i say it is live so there'll be um a live q a you'll hear some some people in the room and and audience direction and of course the sound is a little bit more echoey than it would normally be because um it's live but i hope you enjoy the show we enjoyed recording it um and thanks to the bfi for hosting us um it was a real pleasure to be there um and uh, yeah hope you enjoy the episode coming we are recording live so can you give them give us a big cheer so that the people at home can realize you're here so thank you very much for coming to the fancy animation podcast <laughs> we'll edit that in at various points when it comes to releasing the episode so, um, so thank you for that we have to do that again um i'm alex Sargent, so i'm here to try and um unpack everything magical uh, enchanted and uh, imaginative that about this wonderful movie we're here to talk about, Your Name. Yeah, and I'm uh, Chris Sice, sort of, I guess my role on the, on the podcast is we, we normally have this sort of text in the middle, this, this film or maybe television programme or something like this, and we try and come at it from different perspectives. So Alex has his fantasy hat on, and then I try and talk about things that are interesting within the world of, of animation. So um, anything from aesthetics to themes to, to narrative representation and, and stuff like that. So, so, um, so together we are fantasy. Animation. Um, so Amen. we're going to cheers. So um, we're going to talk for the about um, anime to start with, and, and the sort of origins of that. And that's really going to be me asking Chris a series of questions and learning along with you. But hopefully, we can talk about how it ties into both of our um, fields of expertise. Um, and then we're going to talk about the movie Your yeah. Name, um, which we're we're excited to, to do. Uh, we'll probably go for about forty five minutes to 
50, something like that. Yeah, and then we will hard. open up to questions, comments, and just a general conversation. We normally would have a guest on the show. Um, you are our guests tonight, so please do take part. If yeah, you want to yeah. ask us anything or make any comments or things like that, it's really fun when these live events turn into a kind of free, free uh, wheeling conversation. And so, um, right, we'll get started then, shall we? Yeah. Um, okay, so yes, let's let's talk about um, anime more broadly before we get on to the, tonight's film. Yeah. Um, I guess we should start with some sort of basic questions, Chris. And I know you're always terrified of basic questions because usually basic questions do not lead to basic answers. In fact, usually it's very difficult to start trying to define or yes, yes. explain these terms that a lot of us use, but actually don't yeah. know what they mean. But I'm going to ask you them anyway because it's more fun that way for me, at yeah. least. So um, and there's an audience to see. And there's an audience. Hey, I'm like, what? Yeah. So, so go. On. So. Get us started with this. We would situate this film as an anime. This is part of the BFI's anime yep. festival. Uh, what's an anime? Okay, so it's a terrible, terrible question. Actually, it's quite good that I am. Okay. I am. Uh, <laughs> uh, what's the word? Flanked by a lot of anime scholarship that you can see, kind of the titles of and, and the front pages of. Um, a lot of books on, on anime that I have used, we I think have used in our in our teaching. And I think right at the start of modules on animation or modules on say Japanese culture or even popular cinemas, you often get this question of kind of definition and even stuff like genre theory. You know, what is a genre? How do genres work? And so a lot of stuff on on anime I think begins and there's lots of, of, of writing on anime that begins with exactly that question, like what is what is anime? And then they caveat, or the author caveats that by saying, well, actually, anime is this really sort of slippery category. And it's, it, yes, it is the, the I suppose from, from our perspective, as we sit here in London, it is, it is animation produced within um, uh, the Japanese context. But of course, Japanese audiences would perhaps use the term slightly differently to talk about just animation more broadly. So actually, I would say that what anime does as this kind of interesting object of study is ask us to think about things like artistic practice, um, uh, yeah, animated representation, um, key filmmakers, key moments in history, moments where Japanese anime might have been used for political or propagandist purposes, um, how, how Japanese anime is, say, different from manga. So we've got the relationship between comic books, let's say, and, and animated feature films, which of course raises bigger questions around kind of theories of adaptation. So actually as, a, as, a, as an object of study, that question, what is anime? Well, it's this sort of, yeah, slippery um, multimedia platform that doesn't just exist in the cinema, it exists on television in the short form, it exists in the form of kind of internet web videos, it exists in the form of kind of um, OVA straight to, to video features. Uh, it's a, it's a, a topic that allows us to think about the, the kind of peaks and troughs of, of Japanese popular culture, it allows us to think about theories of adaptation of, of the movement of the object between kind of, I guess, the Japanese context and as we receive it and sit here framed by books written in English about, about Japanese anime. So essentially it's, it's kind of, the, the, it's a term that opens up the history of, of Japanese culture, but also Japan's relation to kind of the graphic arts or the art, the, the yeah, the creative arts, I would say. I mean, that's a good answer. It's quite maddening for, for someone like me coming at it from perhaps not an animation perspective, but from, from a world of, mm. of, of fantasy storytelling and, and how it overlaps with that. So like, if I if I'm looking for an anime, what I'm, what am I looking for, and when will I know one when I when I see one? Um, I suppose it's difficult when we're dealing with film history because one goes to the key filmmakers, your yeah. your your Miyazaki's or your Tetsuka or people people who have produced kind of canonical anime. The problem I think with, as I said, sitting in London and trying to think about anime is it's often defined as this 
I wouldn't say strange other, but this this thing that exists in 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 Japan that is somehow an embodiment of Japanese culture in a way that, or we ask questions of of Japanese anime about its relationship to the culture and the nation that produced it in a way that I don't necessarily think we ask those questions of kind of Hollywood products. Right. So, um, so, if, so if I asked you what animation was quite rightly go where it can be lots of things yeah I wouldn't necessarily say oh it tells us about the history of um, popular kind of US culture or or that kind of thing yeah Um, I suppose anime has a certain kind of from us on a sort of western perspective it feels like the temptation is to is to try and overtly classify it according to one or a couple yeah, of when actually, which is exactly what I'm trying to get you to do but yeah, yeah, but I'm not going to buy italics I'm not going to buy I suppose yeah doing a little bit of, of I mean yeah, the animation modules that I teach are I guess concept based and, and rather than um, I guess I don't know themed in the same way and a lot of people would do the week that they do on Japanese anime they go to kind of Studio Ghibli they do, do Miyazaki they do Spirited Away and we'd have that seminar and talk about kind of politics and we talk about anthropomorphism and we talk about um, character design and things like this when actually the history of Japanese anime is ostensibly the history of, of, of animation these aren't parallel when we talk about animation and anime these aren't parallel histories they are sort of knotted together rather than root and branch. So there is some interesting, the questions that one asks of animation as a medium with regards to genealogies, precursors, um, a life before the cinema, so magic lantern toys, um, all these kinds of, these exist in the Japanese context. So I I wrote down as much with, I suppose that the history of of Japanese anime goes back to painted hand scrolls, it goes back to kind of shadow puppetry, these magic lanterns, these are the precursors that would become I suppose, or solidified into anime or Japanese anime, Japanese animated filmmaking, um, of which the origins can normally be traced to around 19... I'm saying normally 1907. Um, And filmmakers, you know, again, there are peaks and troughs, so you have um, propaganda, Japanese propagandist anime in the 30s and post-war period, really. Then you have kind of booms in the 50s and, and 60s and the birth of kind of studio animation. Then you have, I suppose... Same in the Hollywood context, you have a, a, a moment in the 70s because of the influence of television, and then you have a rebirth in the, or renewal in the 1980s that is often attributed to figures like Miyazaki or Takahata or, or people like that. So, yeah, it's this kind of slippery, and it, it, it really interesting to look at some of the introductions to some of these books, which all begin with this, well, what is anime? Well, it's not really one thing, and, and, and just as animation isn't one thing, um, anime isn't a genre, but it can contain genres. Well, what are the genres that it can contain, and what are what are the what are the genres that it can contain that, that tell us something about the art form? Yeah. So it's as amorphous and as as um, yeah, slippery and diffuse maybe, or as ambivalent as anim- as animation generally. Okay. Um, so what? So. so what does sort of? We're, I guess we're talking about an example of relatively contemporary an- yeah. anime, an anime that a very successful example of anime, right? Mm. It's still. Um, one of the highest grossing films in Japan yeah. of all time. It did extremely well sort of around the world. Yeah. So I guess let's try and contain it to the last sort of 10 years or so. What does anime look like in Japan <laughs> um, in the last 10 years or so? Um, or, and, and as we move on to sort of talk about this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's tricky because again, one I think one often, and I know that a lot of resistance has been met within the Japanese context and certain animators because the label often given to lots of these studios is the, you know, the Japanese Disney and everything is defined in relation to so Hollywood is this kind yeah. of core so actually discussions of anime I think lapse into what we might call this kind of core periphery model of Hollywood as centre and then and then the rest um, and embedded within that relationship 
is the story of the last is the last few years one around I think visibility um, kind of yeah creative practice technology as well so a lot of the the way that Japanese anime has been I guess talked about is its relationship to technology or forms of technology um, I think Hollywood's proximity to Silicon Valley has meant that the sort of the way in which we talk about digital technology within animation is often funneled through the Hollywood context of, of courses when actually um, listening to some talks on, on Studio Ghibli and the way that they integrated certain kinds of CG effects and, and had a kind of CG office, um, the way that they make digital technology or digital aesthetics look hand-drawn, what that then means in terms of the theme, the relationship between form and content. Um, so I think, I mean, I wouldn't say that, yeah, a, a Japanese anime has always been I don't want to say that Japanese anime is now getting its moment because, of course, that's not true. And, and actually, yeah. you know, it, that that is a very um, yeah essentialist way of talking about uh, a, a booming industry that one can trace back to the to the nineteen thirties, sure. really. Um, but I think yeah, it's always tricky on a, on a module on anime anime to, to be like, what am I going to pick? What are some of the key filmmakers? Sure. Uh, what are what are the things that we're going to discuss and 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 how does it yeah. How can, how can anime, or what are some of the questions we can ask of anime in relation to, to what anime might have to say about tradition versus modernity? That's really interesting, because fantasy literature outside the Western context has always struggled with this issue of modernity, um, because for exactly what you're saying, what, what, does, what, does, being, what does being deliberately anti-modern mean in, in a country that has a much more ambivalent relationship to that yeah. notion of modernity? And we see this in Latin American fantasy, where we have like the tradition of magical realism, mm. um, but we also see this in Japan, because Japan is, is both, you know, in, I think is it Susan Napier, a scholar of fantasy literature, puts it that like the, you know, th think about something like Blade Runner as a, as an image of, of Japanese modernity in the sense that at the, at the one time there's 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 perhaps in the Western imagination nothing more modern than Tokyo, you know, than the kind of ultra technical robots, you know, the things that we kind of throw onto Japan as this mm. kind of you know things that make the news, things that um, make the news over here, I should say. But on the other hand, there's a more kind of um, askance or, or critical understanding of modernity because it's not entrenched in the same kind of Western structures and things. So mm. modernity is a word we might play with over the next um, mm. half an hour or 45 minutes or so. Um, I wondered if, if that, does that, would you say that's true of the animation as well? I would say that, and, and, and we need to keep a kind of tally of how many times we mentioned Disney because we won't, but actually one of yeah, the, yeah, I suppose yeah. the, the, the thing that Disney did that was exciting was not define, well, not not, def, not invent animation, let's say. Of course, Disney did not in, invent animation. But what he did was he defined it as a kind of viable economic industry. And that is really, and actually that is, you know, Disney is a, remains, is and remains a corporation um, of which animation is one very lucrative, but one arm nonetheless. So uh, lots of histories of animation kind of tell us about this formative kind of chaotic period of trial and error, which I think also maps nicely onto to the Japanese context, you know, people do, looking at technology, looking at Victorian toys and figuring out how this illusion of life might then make these kinds of cartoons. So again, animation history courses, the first couple of weeks are, yeah, individual pioneers trying to figure out the technology, playing with the art, playing with the craft, um, playing with camera in a way that created the illusion of, of movement. And then Disney comes along and then institutionalizes animation and makes it this kind of yeah, economic industry with hierarchies and trains of production and workforce and labor. And also gen very gendered ideas of labor as well, which persist today. You know, uh, female animators connected to kind of desktop, tabletop production, Lottie Reiniger, um, Sam Moore, you know, people that are working in craft-based traditions. And then you've got the kind of great pioneers within the American context that position 
Disney next to Ford, Gershwin, whoever. So Disney, of course, yeah, didn't didn't um, define, uh, didn't invent animation, but defined what it what it looked like. And again, you kind of have, uh, to some extent, a par- parallel histories because in in the Japanese context, you have studios where, from the I guess from the fifties in particular, um, you have moved towards that kind of studio model and that sort of infrastructure, really. Um, and so in that sense, I would say that they were kind of similar. I think the reason that Miyazaki and Ghibli are kind of so popular is because they have kind of, yeah, they replicate a model that is almost familiar and safe and secure for a Western audience. I, I can understand this kind of studio. And, and, and the fact that the studio is known and Miyazaki is known, it's very similar to the way that we understand these kind of big corporations within the Hollywood context. You know, the Hollywood studio yeah. and then maybe the, the directors or the the... the, the, the chief executive, but actually the animators perhaps are a little bit more un, unknown. So I think one of the reasons that Miyazaki, as you'll see from some of the pictures, often his work is put on the front of a lot of this academic work and has been rightly written out, I know, by people in this room as well, um, is that he is, I guess, an accessible way into thinking about Japanese animation because because he's often seen as replicating the kind of Hollywood model with which we are Sure. familiar I'd say so kind of modern in that sense and his stories are, are often indebted to to sort of fan, western fantasy literature so he yeah. draws a lot from things like uh, Alice in Wonderland and Wizard of Oz Boris. and, and uh, The Borrower yes of course and, and um, Ursula Le Guin and yeah. um, even things like Jonathan Swift like there, there, there's a there's a cross pollination cultural pollination in his work that is also accessible and actually I guess as we transition to talk about oh did you want no, to I was just say, but that would complicate this idea of this well, Japanese product media products must therefore be fundamentally about the pull between tradition and modernity quite quite narrow but if their influences are all, are already transnational sure or there's there's something if we look at fantasy I guess in the way that you would is that the the source material complicates the way in which we might think of these films as solely partitioned off as these kind of products sure. of a particular national cinema. Well, actually, I guess, yeah, again, writing on national cinema talks a lot about the fluid boundaries between national cinemas, and we end up talking about kind of, yeah, transnational cinema, um, uh, accented cinema, where cinema kind of, I suppose, comes from one place, but is, or filmmakers that maybe migrate as part of the diaspora um, talk in one language, but with an accent of their heritage. So that kind of the analogy of the accent becomes really important. But just as in what you were saying, that the transnational quality to, to anime, maybe that's also one of, the, one of the things. It is both Japanese and also not Japanese at the same time. Yeah, well, okay, yeah, absolutely interesting, yeah. Um, I guess, speaking of, of things being one thing and another thing, and fluidity and moving between identities, you see there's a segue coming up, yeah. we should move on to today's film, um, which is you know a film that, in many words, plays with many of the ideas we've already set up um, in the sense that Your Name is is a film that on one level seems to be, you know, so entrenched in the kind of folkloric story. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a body switch, sort of romantic, you know, it's comedic in places, it's tragic at times, but that kind of, the body switch narrative is a well-worn trope within yeah. a lot of different um, fantasy stories. Yeah. Um, the nebulous of the body switch is often traced back to Mark Twain's um, The Prince and the Pauper, but there are lots of different examples of body switching and, and identity switching in, in folklore across various different continents. But this idea of, you often talk in the kind of Wizard of Oz, everything can be related back to the Wizard of Oz. And one of the things is that you talk about characters that exist twice 
or sure. acts, so acts as the performers one and, and so I just wonder what, why, why is fantasy conducive to that kind of switching between because I've got my thoughts in relation to body world switching. building and animation but I just wondered why the body swap narrative is particularly you know it's not germane yeah. to, to, to anime and I don't think it's germane to animation more broadly but um, it's obviously a, a potentially a trope of fantasy storytelling so sure well, a much more eloquent and, and much more famous fantasy theorist than I, um, a guy called Svenstan Todorov, once said that fantasy stories are essentially about one of two things. Um, they're either about um, the self yeah. um, or they're about the other. So they're either fantasies directed about your own identity or they're fantasies directed about how other people um, the sense of being of, of alterity and exteriority yeah. and ultimately that relates back to your own identity anyway so really there's a, fantasy stories are only about one thing and that's 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 yourself um, and, and we see that all the time what fantasy stories are very good at even if they're not necessarily in the kind of pleasant fairy tale folkloric manner but in the kind of more horrific um, disturbing uh, psych psychological kind of thriller um, mode is they're very good at dramatising the kind of boundary the the, the, uh, the the gap that exists between our mental boundaries and our physical boundaries so we are constantly stuck within our own bodies but as um, thinkers we can be elsewhere and that goes from like you know Franz Kafka and the metamorphosis to Prince and the Pauper to a film like Your Name but a fantasy is very good at living on the borders between two what seem to be completely opposing states and dramatizing that through the imagination and through our own psychology we can actually exist and I can I can if you want we can play like a drinking game where I can mention all the types of liminality um, that I think are in this movie because I think this movie is very good yeah. at, at dramatizing sort of you know where you think two completely contradictory states of being exist actually the fantasy finds a way of bridging the two well this is so this is I suppose a key element of of animation I was thinking about um, narratives of yeah metamorph you mentioned metamorphosis but um, lots of writers would say that one of the again begin the first few pages of books on animation are often well what is animation and how can we define it and we get we get that a lot um, and one of the things that we lean on is often medium specificity so some of the things that animation can do that other media art media forms cannot cannot do uh, and actually yeah transformation and metamorphosis are often considered one of the, the kind of keynote. Um, keynote values and, and embedded within that I would say is you talked about this liminality and, yeah. and being I guess two states that are reciprocal or kind of co-present this feeds into I guess more recent thinking about animation's relationship to queerness and there are two ways to think about animation's relationship to queerness one is is the question of representation and case studies or, or yeah case studies of programs let's say where creative personnel practitioners um, uh, would identify as queer equally within the products themselves representation you know the pushback on that is that visibility is is only one part of it um the other part of this is this idea of, of animation itself being a queer medium because it allows that kind of double occupancy or, or um can queer the, can queer the body or it can destabilize identity and fracture and transgress as part of its medium specificity so again i think some of the things that your name was was doing and sets it up narratively i think discussions of 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 twilight is this space that blurs night and day so already liminality is being folded into the stuff of narrative but the extra level to this i would say is the is the animation the ability of animation is this kind of queer transgressive medium at at its i was gonna say ontology then at this yeah. level of being sure, 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 the sure. fact that animation can can create bodies that are unstable or it can destabilize the body um, is part of animation's uncanny effect, but it's also one of the ways that the medium has more broadly 
been seen as having this kind of queering potential, let's say, especially when it comes to bodies. And while these 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 films don't have that kind of metamorphosis, your name does play with selfhood and subjectivity yeah. in the other and, and, and stuff like that um, through well, fantasy. Well, if we start with the, sort of going through the movie, the movie sort of in the opening 20 minutes does this incredible kind of meandering act in terms of where we are aligned as the spectator and who we are asked to kind of see the, the drama through. Because yes. it's sort of, I'm, I'll probably get this the wrong way around, but I tried to write this down as I was watching it. But we sort of start off with a with a with a glimpse of um, of Taki inside. Um, now I can't pronounce any names on this podcast, and I've never Mitsua. been good at it. Mitsua, thank you, yeah. Chris. Taki and Mitsua, and we, we we get this glimpse of of Taki inside Mitsua's um, body because it has this glimpse of the story, and it, there's the classic thing where he. Um, does the teenage any, what any teenage boy would do, um, or any heterosexual teenage boy would do when placed in a in a in a teenage girl's body and starts feeling his own body or yeah. her own body, uh, and we get that kind of glimpse of of otherness in her. Yeah. Then we suddenly see about 10, 15 minutes of the drama from her perspective, and we go, um, you know, we 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 miss the day where she's um, um, learning. We learn about the story as we go through it. If this was a fantasy story, we'd call it a portal quest because what's happening is what is a Alex? What is a portal? Because what's happening is, is we're learning about the magical event taking place. We're learning at it through the perspective of a character already learning about it. So right. a classic portal quest would be Dorothy, the Wizard of Oz, second mention of the podcast. Um, uh, we'll whack them up by the end. Um, Dorothy learns about Oz as we learn yeah. about Oz. So we are learning about this magical body switching through the perspective of this girl who is learning it at the same time. And then just as we settle into that mode of spectatorial yeah. allegiance, we suddenly flip to the to um, Taki. Uh, and this happens throughout the movie sort of at various points. So it's, it's an interesting question as to who the main character is of the mm. movie and, and who we are asked to see the world through. And the way the film uses that helps to get at this idea of liminality and this kind of fluidity mm. of identity. I would, yeah, and I would say that I realize also as part of this podcast we should continually swap seats, but we're not going to do that. Could do, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the films. So one of the things that struck me about the opening, then in relation to what yeah. you just said, is the pacing. And I think a lot of writing on on Miyazaki talks about these kind of Ozu influenced pillow shots, um, kind of reflective moments of kind of contemplation of, of landscapes yeah. and the world going by. I didn't get a sense of that in this in this film because the pacing was designed, I think, through the editing to keep us moving between two different characters and with that two different spaces. So embedded within these two characters, I was trying to write down some sort of binaries. So you've got the local and the rural versus where there's no bookstore sure. versus kind of this big space of, of kind of Tokyo and how Tokyo is presented as this aspiration. Um, and the, and the comparisons that the film then sets up between sliding doors, two different kinds of sliding doors sure. defined through the kind of quote-unquote different levels of, of um, modernity. So I liked the way that the film, again, yeah, kind of folded, I suppose, folded its narrative preoccupations into its editing patterns. Mm -hmm. So that the editing kind of, the amount of mirrored shots and the repetition, so the structure of the film is sort of mirrored in the way, or mirrors, let's say, the thematic preoccupations of movement between different spaces that are funneled through these different kinds of different kinds of characters who end up kind of becoming queered because they sure. overlap. Well and, and that helps and that helps kind of set up this liminal space because then you've got, you know, as I say, one of the one of the 
the diametric contrast setup in the movie is is is, is Tokyo versus um, Itamori, um, yeah, yeah. The, the the town she lives in, um, and it's it townhouse country mouse, isn't it? It's this this folkloric structure of two opposing worlds. One wants to live in the other. The other one's a bit dissatisfied with living where they are. Um, and then I think the way the film uses time is really yes. fascinating because it jumps forward, it jumps backwards, it repeats, yes. it misses bits out. Um, it's a kind of very kaleidoscopic. A mosaic version of time and the way it does that allows it to kind of do things like show us the, the sort of you know they both do that thing that a lot of body swap films will do where you see the first day and there are moments that repeat themselves isn't it the morning routine the breakfast yeah, they're both yeah, yeah. similar but different they're, they go to school their friends their friends react similarly but differently and, it, and it's doing that to, to highlight that Yes, the contrast between the two of them, yeah. but also the similarities. Again, it's it's this you know it's very good at, at, at destabilizing any clear sense of, of identity, and it's also very good at you know what who are we watching here? Who who are the characters that we are watching? Because quite often we're watching one character's body with another character's personality. Um, we have characters that react very similarly to that. So we have Taki's yeah. um, nominal love interest, um, mm-hmm. whose name escapes me um, off the top of my head, who is. You know, it does that thing of thought like again another trope of the body swap comedy of falling for the guy when she, he is actually the girl in the mother's body, which has a sort of queer subversion going yeah, on yeah, anyway. Yeah. And then kind of learning about that and, and going through it and, and actually finding kind of both of them equally fascinating. And and in, in her friendship with Taki, she's actually having a friendship with both characters at the same time. And and, yeah. and that becomes kind of submerged into his or her understanding of his identity. Yeah. So that's another liminal space that the mm. film kind of tackles and, 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 and breaks apart. Yeah. There two, so two things that have just jumped, yeah, jumped into my brain so I should kind of keep them sure. keep them there um, the first is the kind of question of orientalism the self-orientalizing I was thinking about um, the oh, not exportability but the transnational flow of these kinds of, of, of movies and the way in which I think there is a degree of I don't want to say fetishism but a sort of a way in which we view Japan or certainly I would say the way in which Japan is presented um, this goes back to histories of, of, of kind of world cinema and the, and the way in which um, there's a kind of savviness to certain kinds of national cinemas because they think uh, one of the ways to make this product extend across national and to make money in Hollywood is to kind of almost self-orientalize. And I wonder whether there's, I wouldn't necessarily say that's in play here, but something around the, the repetitious acts in the film that link to kind of customs, which I think might would be interesting to know to what extent that plays out through a kind of self-orientalizing rhetoric of, of kind of otherness. The second one is about is about rhythm and the way that characters in the film are kind of caught caught amid competing. Now, now I'm very excited about this bit because before we recorded this podcast, Chris said to me at some point I really want to talk about rhythm, and I had no idea what he was talking about. Who uh, can answer anything? I more. didn't know if this was a question that he wanted to cover in the bar afterwards or whether. But okay, Chris, talk let's, to me. Let's what go on for earth. It. Do you want to talk about rhythm with this movie? Well, 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 well. Um, so you know, animation is because of by virtue of its um, illusion of life and, and movement is often being considered. I think from a practitioner perspective, through through timing, movement, poise, pose. And rhythm, so rhythm is obviously fundamental to the way that animators would conduct their work. I think that's 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 standard. Um, 
However, there has been writing on rhythm by a number of kind of sociologists, cultural theorists that talk about the way that we are in the world is often as, uh, as, the, as the meeting point or the convergence of different kinds of, of rhythms. So there's a book which I just said, which is called The Product, uh, Production of Space, which is about how our lives are kind of graphed through different kinds of rhythms. Um, and these rhythms take on two forms. One is the kind of cyclical and one is the linear. So cyclical would be seasons, um, uh, menstruation, uh, kind of time zones, let's say, kind of big cosmic understandings of, of rhythm. And the, the linear are things like calendars, um, clocking into work, clocking out of work, uh, emails, reminders, timetables, train time. Oh, well, this is where arrhythmia comes from, that you become out of sync and out of step. There are brilliant movies that play with this. So I would say A Scanner Darkly, the Richard Linklater film, um, which is, has drugs at the core of its narrative, but it's about characters that are arrhythmic, and that is manifest in a kind of slippery style of the film for people that have seen um, A Scanner Darkly that's achieved through this sort of rotor shop um, make the film and then paint all over it so it's kind of quasi-animated, let's say. But you end up with this animated texture that sort of slips over the, the live-action footage. So I think the film's great for talking about rhythm. This film, I think, is also really interesting to talk about rhythm because its characters, how many shots do you see of trains departing and leaving and time times, and crucially calendars and phones and text messages yeah. and scrolling. And, and I, I was trying to, yeah, to note down all the kinds of schedules and, and alarms. And lots of scenes have alarms and characters wake. And so the film is kind of playing with different kinds of rhythms and competing kinds of rhythms. Yeah. But I liked the way that the animated characters were positioned in the film at the mercy of different kinds of, you know, and perhaps the biggest rhythm is the comet. Sure. Um, so you have some really interesting plays with rhythm at the level of the sort of cyclical or the, the cosmic, so the rhythm the, of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the comet or of the seasons that change, which they do. We have snow, we have rain, we have sunshine. Um, in addition to the rhythms of everyday life. And, and the idea is, is that we are constantly rhythmed bodies in the way that you have to sit in these rows and you go out that door, but not that door. And COVID restrictions mean there are arrows in the floor that you, so this is the, this is the kind of monstrous manifestation of rhythm, the way that you rhythm. There's a reason why protests happen in front of government buildings, not in the middle of a field, because space is rhythmed and we, we so there's lots of writing from our kind of social perspective. Um, so the film kind of plays with that, and I liked the way that the characters, you have this sort of macro rhythm because you have the comet that is the threat and the jeopardy, and, and this is what narratives need. You need drama and jeopardy and like the threat of a deadline. Of course you do. But actually, you have these micro rhythms where characters are, are, are scrolling and they're living their life through the phone and the calendar and the alarm. And, yeah. and actually, what then the film plays with is, is these characters that have this arrhythmia because they have to move between rhythms of ultimately across time, not just of, of space. That's what I wanted to say about but, but there's But now you say that, there's also a rhythm to the fantasy of the film in that we get these moments where we settle in. And, and again, fantasy is very good at this. Fantasy, um, it's a very odd little demon fantasy because it's, it's supposedly you can do anything, anytime, any way. And, and animes or, you know, popular animes that travel outside of Japan and sort of have been consumed by the West are yeah. often very good at letting fantasy kind of be really free-flowing and not worrying too much about um, 
you know the kind of more western obsession with rule building and and world building and okay great harry potter um goes into slytherin not griffin no goes into gryffindor but not slytherin but hang on a minute is the sorting hat sorting them or are they sort you know these kind of obsessions that one can really <laughs> jump into the you know the world of of of, of and, and anime is quite good at just letting uh, sort of fantasy speak to emotion and and letting it be more free-flowing than that yeah uh, and yeah, and yeah, and yeah, and yeah, this film is very good at unsettling rhythm because of fantasy because it, we get these, okay, right, they're switching bodies. Then we get settled in sort of for the first third of the movie where they switch bodies at a semi-regular basis. We don't quite know exactly, I don't think it's ever completely set out how often they're switching bodies. It's not every day. It's, and the, it's the power of the montage. Yeah, just... but, but the montage is if it is nothing but rhythm, right? It's, yeah, um, yeah, that's um, what it is. It, yeah, so so the montage sets up this rhythm of okay, they're now regularly switching, they're texting, all this kind of stuff, and then when they stop doing that, uh, the rhythm is altered, and then you think okay, they're never going to do that again, and then they start again. There is no rhythm to the fantasy, and it, and and almost things get more magical and more strange and more peculiar and more dreamlike. Uh, the more that mm. rhythm is is broken and, and deliberately kind of. Um, uh, played with or, or altered or, or made more jazz-like. Is that fair? Let's say it. We'll cut that out. Yeah. <laughs> jazz-like. No, I was, I was thinking about... Let's say it and run with it. Um, yeah, I was thinking you're on your own. Yeah. I was thinking about, I suppose, another way that... Like, vi- visually, you know, this this is... A, I would say it's an, attra- it's an attractive film. Um, and of course, because of its kind of colour palette and, and lushness of scenery. And, and sometimes I did think I was looking at, like, photographs. Um, sure. But, you know, the plays with... The, the, or the illusion I think part of that rhythm or part of the pleasure of the film comes from the fact that there is an illusion that it's being mediated through a camera so my first note but not your first note is uh, lens flare so lens flare comes up a lot in the film and you have this kind of spiking light create this illusion that the film is being kind of filmed through a camera that isn't there and light is refracting off glass that doesn't exist um, but also there are instances or there was a moment that I noted that had kind of sped up footage so kind of the illusion of fast paced almost like CCTV yeah. cameras being put on fast forward. And I thought that was a really good, yeah, kind of sped up for the simulated the camera that, all I put is simulated sped up camera. But I think there's a sort of, the film plays a lot with different temporalities and different, I guess, time-based, I'm not gonna say time image, but time-based images where you have footage that is sped up, you have kind of slow motion moments, particularly Yeah, I wanna talk end, about them. And you have repeat, repeating shots of the film, the shots, the, film's, the film has a rhythm because of the editing, but the film is kind of, again, I think reflexive about, I just got a, an acute sense of a body being targeted through different rhythms in the film, I think. With, I want, I'm glad you brought up the moment of, the, of the, the kind of where it almost settles into sort of almost still drawings of the characters. Yes. Um, and it's almost used to evoke memory in the, in the film. And I, and, I, and, I, and, and I guess that's the really kind of radical rhythm the film is even breaking with, because at that point, it's almost like the film is daring to remind us of what you know the essential rhythm of all kind of cinema and all animation, but also all, all live action. things and all yes. things. No, no, no. Certainly, all projected images. Yeah. That the, the twenty-four frames a second, the rhythm of twenty-four frames a second. Um, well, I think it, the, uh, I think it's Laura Mulvey, the, the film theorist, talks about de- like the equivalent, the most horrific death that one can evoke in cinema is the death of the still image, because cinema, the life of cinema is in that 24 frames mm. a second projection, is in that rhythm. So there's a moment yeah. in the film that almost is daring us to see the images, the stillness, the death, or the lack of life yeah. even in these characters that we so want to believe in and so want to 
go with and, that, and that's that's part of the bit of sweet power of this movie I think there's a line towards the beginning that's um, it's a dream with a sense of loss and there's something about like the hopefulness the beauty the, the romanticism the utopian nature of a story where characters can miss, meet across space and time and touch hands and, and yet it's all doomed and it's all mm. um, it's all never never was and never could be so yeah, yeah. so I have an impossible question because you always ask me impossible questions now, normally so, this is a format point I normally get to ask the impossible question I thought it was what is anime but alright no no well, yeah. I was thinking about I was thinking about ghosts and like spec- like the spec- image of spec- the spectre let's say okay. in the and I wondered whether there, what the relationship is between fantasy storytelling and ghosts because I think obviously the ghost is particularly important in this film but actually I think the way that the ghost is read allegorically in a lot of popular movies is about yes, it's about haunting, but it's about kind of catharsis and working through trauma and 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 you know. It's also, about, it's also about things not things staying. So um, I was going to ask about how your what is the relationship between well, fantasy? Would you call would you call that would you call this a ghost? So this movie? is the, this is one of the questions that maybe we can because I, I I think it's. If the characters are not well, so if, if if they're not ghosts, they have that have at least a spectral quality sure. because they kind of haunt different spaces. And particularly at the end, which when we were talking about this this morning, you said uh, I sort of yeah, but I got it all until like 15, 20 minutes towards the end. <laughs> I was I'll saying say. there's a, there's usually a bit in an anime that I watch um, where, <laughs> and it's definitely a, uh, you know having raised on a diet of the sort of of Disney and things like that so it's, it's definitely me not the not, not the genre the product yeah, yeah. but there's always a bit in an anime where I kind of recite the plot back to myself and then I go a bit cross-eyed and I'm like what hang on I, I understand what's happening but I don't understand what's happening it's that dream logic that as I say when, when anime is really good it really manages to kind of take over that need to yeah. rationalise and just go look it matters because it feels and and feeling things matter so yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I and I and I love the fact that the film I felt that moment happened for me in the movie when when the two lovers well the two romantic leads um, what became together at, at, meet properly meet properly at, yeah. at, the, at the lake yeah. and because it because it's a moment that just completely fissures any sense of sorry what's happening what all these time loops and time jumps and time you know it, it's gone from being a Sudoku puzzle to um, a I mean, stop looking. I was going to say I'm waiting for you. Yeah, I don't know what the end of that is, but like any attempt to solve or crack the puzzle, at that moment, the film asks you just to abandon it in in kind of reckless. But presumably in fantasy, that those kinds of things don't necessarily matter, as you say. Well, they matter in Western fantasy. Right. Western fantasy is obsessed with explaining, characterizing, making logic, making sense within the context of the fantasy story. Um, Outside of that tradition, less so, and it's usually, or writers will say, it's usually because writers are more interested in kind of breaking apart that kind of because what you know logic and and and, and the sense of a, an overarching total structure and everything having to fit within one another and making sense not has a certain you know power structure dynamic to it so writers who are trying to to out, right outside that medium often don't feel that need to, to rationalize and I, and I do love it when it does that but yeah it's it's the moment in the movie where they meet properly at the lake and you're and you're uh, and you're that's the moment where all these kind of twisting narrative and logics just it just abandons it in mm. favour of something kind of more emotional. There's a dream, again another liminality point: rationality versus dreamlike logic, or emotional mm. logic versus rational logic. I mean, I did think this kind of spectral quality to the film. So writing, yeah, I didn't say anything about ghosts then, by the way. I yeah, I know. Duly um, noted. Yeah. Spectral time. <laughs> so um, Bisquire Lim has written about spectral time, and I wrote. There's a good quote: Go, uh, ghosts call our calendars into question. Um, they often function. 
indigenous historical allegories. They're obviously about haunting, about the limits of time and temporality, but they trouble these boundaries of past and present. But I like this idea that by calling our calendars into question, there's this philosophical angle to ghosts because it tells us that yeah. time is not linear or homogenous. And actually, I felt that that worked quite nicely with this this issue of rhythm in the film because the f whole film has this sort of spectral quality because it it has shots where characters are kind of meeting but not meeting, especially around the lake, as you said at the end. They sort of meet, I think, couple, yeah, well, they, they meet in different ways, but not not like that. And then obviously they then meet again, yeah. twice, once on a train, going in different directions or when sure. it's facing each other, and then at the very very end of the film on the, on the staircase. Yeah. So I I I, I don't. I don't really. I suppose it doesn't really matter per se if the if the figures are supposed to be ghosts, especially given the tragedy of three years before, and and this means that Tack is moving between time periods, and and I think for him she functions as a ghost, or at least a kind of spectral. Sure. But she's then then de further destabilized at the end, where you're like, actually, they do exist in the same space. Yeah. So I, I still think there's a kind of haunting, yeah, a haunted, like, haunted quality to the film that comes yeah. from its plays with rhythm and time and yeah. and temporality and and maybe that kind of confusion sure really between sure. stuff I, I want to open it up to questions in a second do you have any final scribbled notes um, of wisdom that you want to share uh, uh, um, to I suppose we've talked about this on the podcast pretty kind of complex storytelling strategies which are very much a sort of post I would not a post inception thing post, a post um, let's say in the Hollywood context a post memento thing but actually in other national cinemas have a much better and more complicated history um, the sort of relationship that the film has to braids and braiding and different kind of sure. knotted um, knotted time um, and yeah I also like the moments where I think the animation style changes so when he's he's kind of when, it, when the film goes back to remember childhood I thought the pastel kind of there's a more pastel quality so the I suppose that the film itself embodies exactly that diversity of anime so far as it's not this consistent set of images you know this often anime has been considered to have this more sort of painterly aesthetic um, but I thought the film lapsed into that really yeah kind of really um, nicely any final bits my, my only my only final limin liminality so well, I've got to do what eight shots after this something like that um, will be um, my final liminality <laughs> would be a, what kind of dream if you're calling this film a ghostly tale or a dream what kind of dream I think yeah. there's a really interesting tonal the way it plays with ideas of you know, in in a way, it's a film that's quite um, cynical in terms of its worldview. A lot of the polit there's there's issues of political corruption going on. There's issues of political yes, inaction yes. going on. Yeah, yeah. And there's a sense that that what we're watching here is a kind of um, a falling apart of society. Is it a dream of? Uh, is it a dream of reconstruction? Is it a dream of nostalgia? Mm. Um, the two worlds of Tokyo and and the town uh, Itamoro has two completely different visions of Japan and yes, this is yes, the one yes. that the film is, is encouraging um, there's there's a regeneration thing going on in fact there's a lot of lots of politicians use that word regeneration yeah, yeah. a lot what kind of fantasy is this and what kind of victory is achieved at the end of the movie when they yeah. um, when they well I'd be interested to know the the, the, the thoughts about the the different version of Japan but also the one the film is I don't know critiquing or privileging yeah. or commenting upon or at least you know there is something yeah that collision of two even within this kind of the homogeneity let's say japan from a sure. there's, there's a, a nuance to different ways of understanding japanese-ness i think in the film so it'd be interesting to sort of Absolutely. play with the um yeah well, like, okay so yeah we'll, we'll throw it open it will we'll, we'll, so, so yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll we have a question um in the middle there if that's all right Kate. and also thanks for asking a question because it can be this really awkward thing where everyone's like i have no questions and it's now really cringy so <laughs> 
Thank you. Uh, Japanese writers have actually explicitly said they want an American live-action version of this. In fact, they've explicitly said, if Japan's going to do a live-action version, we'll make one, but we want to see one from a Western perspective. As such, there is a film that has been in development hell for quite some time, yeah, yeah. with a boy from Chicago and a girl from a Native American, which I didn't understand until I realised, oh, they need an explanation for the, why this is all happening in a replacement to Shinto. Oh, right, 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 yeah, yeah, okay, uh, okay. But my question is, do you think that can be sold and work to uh, a Western audience? And more importantly, can it be sold outside of marketing to the traditional anime fan base? Because when you look at all the products that have come before, there is a thing in Hollywood right now where they think all the IPs are invented and yeah. so they're just rebooting and remarketing everything. A story like this, I think, personally, I do think this can work to outside of that. But yeah. do you think Hollywood can get out of the phase of Let's just market to those who already know it. Sure, sure. I, I mean, it, demonstrably, it can work because we're all here chatting about it in the UK, you know, and it's been a colossal success around yeah. the world. So it's that's classic thorny thing about remakes is you're constantly balancing between um, not wanting to be so cynical because there's so many great remakes throughout film history across all different cultures and. You know, where would we be without some remakes that have moved different uh, national contexts? So I'm hopeful. I think we've spoken a little bit on the podcast about all the kind of, you know, folkloric structures and things that are embedded within the tale that you could re-translate to a different culture and a different culture specifically and make something really interesting. It is always a bit disheartening when it comes four or five years out of something that was so great and you're already kind of half in love with. Like, you know, I don't really need it. But um, but uh, you know it could it could be great. I, I failed to see it being as good as, as this one because because this has the, the spark of originality and that's always something to crave, isn't it? I mean, I would yeah. So thank you. I think yeah. um, the 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 nuts. And maybe I was gesturing towards this with regards to this kind of contemporary puzzle film trend. Let's say within Hollywood, I think there's an appetite within a Hollywood context to think about complex and complicated storytelling. So I think that that is an element that would both appeal and I think translate because I think embedded within those kinds of you know intellectual property extravaganza films that one gets all the time um, from Free Guy to the Rupert's Internet to uh, what they called ah oh, Marvel yeah um, <laughs> the, um, oh those lads yeah <laughs> jokers um, I think that the, the kind of the nuts and bolts of complex and complicated storytelling I think are are something that would would translate. And I think, because I think of certain kinds of fan communities that engage with complex storytelling and, and questions of the canon are as big, and certainly in this case, as they've ever been, you know, how Marvel is playing with that, with its what-if stories and playing with high, hypothetical narrative. So I think that kind of complexity of storytelling, and we, we talked about this when we did our episode on WandaVision, um, I think does I think that that makes it an, an a, to suggest that there would be an appetite at the basic level of storytelling. Yeah. I guess there'll be this desire to over-explain, though. I can't help feel, particularly when the film gets into its sort of final act. Again, that's that's a Western fantasy thing. Everything has to have a logic or a, or a reason behind it, and not always great. I also think that there's I, I live in a world where they like use some digital de-aging or something to play <laughs> with temporality because that's obviously yeah. another big you know stars confronting younger versions of themselves. And, I, I, and, I, I think it's more interesting that it's live action. I think that makes it a more interesting thing to me because if they were just making another, you know, cell animation or indeed even a CGI animation, yeah. I think there's something about trying to tell this very amorphous story through live action that sounds interesting to me. But um, yeah, it, well, probably, it yeah. probably won't be, will it? Yeah, but um, the, 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 the remake culture is obviously in, embedded with with 
questions of well imperialism essentialism and kind of cultural nas- national cultural specificity so what happens do you do you dilute cultural national specificity to, to make a product palatable to a western audience or do you kind of go the other way and think in these self-orientalizing terms you know actually no we need to in order to tell this story we need to lean on certain kinds of elements that are intrinsically japanese or, sure. or but this this thing about replacing shinto with native american you like that that concerns me in terms of like trying to explain the, su- well, the supernatural elements. Well, that's just what I have in my head. That's yeah. what I think. Better. Yeah, 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 yeah. To kind of use. I like the theory. Yeah, yeah. 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 So terrible sets of answers to that sure. question, but I think sure. I I, I think it would be successful, and I think the way that Hollywood's going with regards to its storytelling, but also how it likes to play with time and and. Um, stardom in relation to obsolescence and like how old is too old well you can just make them younger only if you're a man though if you're a woman if you're not Helen Mirren Judy Dench or Meryl Streep that's it you know so there I think there are, you know the way that Hollywood plays with aging and, and stuff like that I think yeah there'd be an appetite given where I think Hollywood is as an industry maybe um, thank you today. yeah I think we had a question at the, at the back yeah what do you think your name has to say about uh, Romance, relationship, and intimacy, given its fantasy and given its body swatching. It's a good question. Romance, That's a what were the three keywords there, sir? Romance, romance intimacy, intimacy, and relationships. relationships. Yeah. But you said given that it's a fantasy. Mm. So I'm just, I'm wondering whether. Uh, yeah, wow, okay. Well, I mean, uh, the one that's striking me is intimacy. Yeah. I think it's I think it's a very in, interesting movie in terms of intimacy, particularly oh, yeah. with, with particularly when we terms of sort of the violation of bodies that is going yeah. on in this body swatching that the film kind of deals with um, in a kind of deliciously murky way. Like, I think it, it's deliberately complicated about the body politics of inhabiting someone else's body and the yeah. way that the, the, the male and female character, certainly the male character, exploits you know her body. For his own gratification, um, and, um, and and yeah, and and the way it kind of it, it, it flags that up, it deals with it. So in in many ways, you know, it's emotionally very intimate, right? But it's also physically very um, well. It's very violating, you know. And that, that again, maybe perhaps perhaps I've I've got another shot for myself, another liminal category to think through is the is the boundary between vi- physical violation. And emotional um, intimacy and consent versus yeah. um, I don't know what an earth magical consent looks like, but there's this sort of weird. There is a they reach this kind of pact, don't they, where they agree to use each other's body, yeah, yeah, in, in mutually beneficial ways. But that pact is always violated by one of the um, one of the other members, isn't yeah. it? If, if it's something as superficial as. Uh, she sends a text and it is and, or indeed something as, as, as you know or kind of using as, bodies as, as a canvas it. as well the yeah. film also does that um, I suppose yeah the intimacy is a great question yeah, it's a really great question the intimacy thing is interesting I suppose there are a couple of lines of dialogue that I fear may that, uh, again a version of this in Hollywood is like the essentially I'm thinking about what women want I'm thinking about a version of this where you have that kind of <laughs> because of two lines one I never knew you had a feminine side yeah. is one uh, and there's a line about Taki himself being a kind of late bloomer and him going through the process of, I wouldn't say socialising, but learning how to, how to love and be intimate yeah. through this sort of, let's say, queer narrative in, in, the, sure. in the broadest sense of the terms. Um, and I fear that's the kind of thing that Hollywood would run with. There's a kind of a montage of him as her learning to do, or vice versa and that kind of thing. Um, so I think the film is very interesting, or, or I liked the bits in the film that, that 
gave a little bit more nuance to what to that experiential yeah. moment of being in another body beyond the kind of discovery. And that's what you know. That's what children do. They have to live in a world that isn't built for them, so they end up climbing the walls and exploring things and exploring bodily boundaries and themselves and other people and look at themselves in a mirror and, and stuff like that. And, and I think that another you know another thing I suspect they might do with the remake is that I suspect they might age them by a few years because this is another thing is by being teenagers there is also another thing about sort of the boundary between yeah. um, childhood and adulthood going on in these characters that makes some of these scenes quite interesting to sort of think through in that and we, and we, and yeah, and we've, we talked about this on, on our other kind of Ghibli episodes the sort of figure of the show this, cat, this female character caught between childhood and adulthood yeah. state. so actually it makes sense of the age given that they are at this process of let's say uh, becoming in again in the in the broader sense of the world, which I know people have written about in relation to 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 queerness too. Queerness is something that apparently you atta- you attain. Yeah. Um, culture thinks you attain it rather than anything else. So I think there's there's some interesting what, stuff. What, what was the final key word? We did intimacy, uh, romance, and relationships. Relationships. Um, yeah. Relationships. Well, I think yeah. I mean, again, I, I'll go I go back to the to the rhythm of the film and how the. F- how the, the the moments where the film puts the characters together and the moments where it keeps them apart and then and then in the end does both by having them occupy the same space seemingly at different times and in shots where you feel like one of them's been erased yeah. and you're like and it's almost almost as if the cell animation process they've overlaid the two cells let's say um, even though this would have gone through kind of the digital grading suite but the two cells and you stripped one of the so the characters having a conversation with somebody who isn't there so I think again I maybe attribute the relate the quality of relationships to the to what the film does with the characters and how <coughs> how it has them occupy the same space um, and even at the end on the kind of staircase and moments and on the bridge where you think they're going to stop and then don't and then meet up again and, and stuff like that um, yeah that sounds yeah. good but I think intimacy is really good is yeah, yeah, is a yeah, yeah. is a good one as well yeah any more questions yeah. You sort of talked about like you know uh, obviously two sides of Japan the modern yeah. and the spiritual, um, and obviously this film you know shows two sides of Japan. Um, would you sort of say it sort of idolizes one or you know shows the faults of both? Because obviously he yeah. lives in a material world, everything is everything at his fingertips, but he's obviously a bit mundane and life's a bit empty. Whereas she lives in this beautiful world but it's sort of cut off and she's impressed by this father who very much doesn't want to change his ways and sort of live in the old way and sort of like she longs for the modern world but both sides have had their own forms and also their pros as well yeah I mean I, I, I think the, the second bit is absolutely right this idea of kind of the, the faults of both yeah. because I knew gestured this a little bit with the prince and the pauper I think the sort of the yeah. complementary elements to these two these two different kinds of spaces I think the film is very conscious it's very conscious and interested in not critiquing both outright but it's interesting that one is devastated and becomes this through its devastation almost becomes more I don't know more spiritual in a way so I I, I I don't. I don't know. It's probably. A, it's probably a bit of both. But yeah, and there's. I guess there's a thing about forgetting and remembering. Obviously, in the movie, the whole your frame of your name, in that there's an interesting kind of paradox with it with the town. In that, in the town is 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 beloved and held up as this kind of cultural site because it has been destroyed. Mm. Uh, and so by saving the town you're saving the life of the town and you're making the town meaningful again and you're making the town part of society again but you're also kind of removing the thing that in the modernity of, of the beginning of the movie what makes it kind of special and known and, and that idea of, of I must remember I must remember and it seems to be only through tragedy and, and trauma mm. or indeed through something magical 
that memory can be preserved in this movie. And so I think I think the movie is very interested in tradition, but I think you're right, and I think you sort of alluded to your own in the question itself that it's not as simple as saying, oh, you know, it's 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 anti one and anti another, and it's not as and it's also not as banal as going, hey, they're the best of both, aren't they? Um, it's it's interesting in 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 kind of accepting the inevitability of modernity and the inevitability of modern spaces and the, and the the importance of being mm. connected and the importance of 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 embracing sort of the good of the modern world. Um, but it is certainly if it's not. Um, if it's not, if it, if, it, if, it, if it accepts that modernity is inevitable, it's, at least it allows itself to be a bit sad at the idea of sort of tradition and 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 and, and an old way of life fading um, or indeed um, being being taken away. Um, so it's 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 an interesting paradox the film plays with. To preserve one, it has to almost forget um, to remember it or something, you know, like that. Interesting question. Thank yeah. you. We have we yeah, have a question. Yeah, kind of on that theme. Um, I slightly was uh, expecting to talk more about sort of Mussolini and, and the, 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 the twine and, and talk, yeah. all that sort of thing. Not think maybe to me it says there's a slight cautionary tale in there about moving on too quickly because um, these people are saved by this cycle of Mussolini that goes around and, and it comes back and it, it can't necessarily connect straight away to where it wants to get to, but it goes around. And it comes around and around and around, and eventually it gets to two people who are in the right time frames and are able to actually uh, carry out the right things to save the. Again, maybe we, we, it's alluded to the fact that they maybe this happened before because it was created by. Yeah, I think I think no, 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 no. I never. Oh God! If I believed in reading too much into things, I wouldn't have a job. <laughs> the the meagre, the, the, the joke of a career I've got. So yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely no, I, I, and um, I think that's yeah. I think you're right about that. There's this yes. Ta again, time is in, you know moving moving too fast and moving too slow are two very uh, uh, opposite tendencies that the film plays with, and I think I like I like that reading a lot. But, but and that's also the way that a lot of I, I would say my experience of, of, of Japanese anime tries to understand the. The, the states of modernity about again that kind of arrhythmic yeah. you are living you're living in a world that's kind of yeah moving too fast for you um, I would say um, yeah and 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 trying to preserve tradition yeah. whilst accepting um, yeah the modern world and, and and its benefits and its and its chaos and its inevitability but also the, yeah and also the film is quite like you know it does it, you have to lean into the ambivalence, as you were saying, or lean into the ambiguity of it in, uh, in order to make sense of these kind of, yeah, I think these kind of competing rhythms, the fact that this may have happened happened before, and how the film almost over. So this is what I mean about this kind of spectral quality, that over you it overlays time in a way that suggests that it's not linear or homogenous. It is, mm. it is disrupted, and we, 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 our experience of modernity is often arrhythmic because we are trying to keep up. You've ever tried to show... If you ever tried to show my dad how to use an iPhone, you are that is a rhythm right there because you're trying to kind of keep up with the with the world that is kind of moving too fast. So um, I think I'd like I'd have to watch it several more times, I think, to try and map out some of the ways that it's playing with with time and kind of but I think the repetition is important in the film. There is something about the repetition that really destabilizes your understanding of not just time, but I think kind of narrative. Yeah. But you I think the film then leads into the its repetitious acts. Yeah. Um, but changes stuff slightly. So doors that are slightly different. Yeah. Or, no. or they all they all seem to open. And then one time they no they all seem to close. And then one time they open or something like that. Anyway. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Good point. Good point. 
Do we have any other questions? Yes, in the front row. Just briefly, um, I think that this reference itself has said that the film's partly a fantasy about the uh, 2011 earthquake. And yes. The, the whole fantasy about if you could warn people earlier. And obviously the film's made only five years after yeah, the yeah. disaster. Um, in terms of fantasy, I suppose, more, um, have you any comments on how it's obliquely refers to the real events? Yeah, well, I think this is because, yeah, let's, I'll let Alex talk about fantasy and allegory, and, and fantasy is this kind of, it's quite on the nose because I was, yeah, interested in that. Normally, I would, you know, fantasy is used as this kind of cipher, or I don't know, I'm going to talk instead of you now, but I'll hand over to you because I think that yeah, allegorical. I've, I've, I've got a rant. Um, I would go on for about Ooh, what, three, what, 31 hours left of recording, no worries. Um, lock the doors, Katie, lock the doors. <laughs> about fantasy and allegory, yeah, and I'll yeah. try and keep the rant as short as possible, which is that there's a really interesting tension between fantasy and allegory, because uh, particularly in the Western context where fantasy is, is sometimes a dirty word, sometimes a bit of an F word, um, we have this tendency to make fantasy matter by allegorizing it, right? So, um, so there's this implication that when fantasy is good, it is being used to as allegory. Um, and the problem that fantasy theorists and fantasy fans can have and should have with that is that if you take something like Animal Farm as a sort of classic allegory or a classic fable, there's not actually much fantasy going on in Animal Farm when, when you really strip it down because Animal Farm is such an overt allegory, the space for the imagination and the kind of um, energy in a talking pig and a talking cow and a talking horse dissipates. So the trick for allegory and fantasy is to somehow evoke allegory, evoke the figurative, evoke the kind of duality of meanings, not as a way of moving from the literal fantasy to the figurative truth, but somehow allowing multiple different truths and multiple different um, things to exist, because that's the moment where fantasy is, is, pow is powerful, when it's not trying to speak to a truth, but trying to allow the viewer to imagine a truth. And I think this film does that very well because it's just, just, it, you know, it, it, it's overt enough to make it clear what it's trying to do, but it still allows, not only does it allow um, the story to kind of, to, to remain literal through all the kind of beautiful techniques we've talked about mm. and, and the rhetoric of the whole thing. Um, but it, well, actually sort of that's, that's, that's the truth of it, isn't it? It's like, I'm, I'm, um, the comet is, a, is, a, is an object of, of destruction and absolute beauty in the movie. And in a way that's this film's relationship to, to history and to modern history and to trauma is it tries to beautify it by making it fantastical as well as mm -hmm. trying to deal with it and allowing people to process it and, and engage with the trauma. And that, that, that wish is, is the bittersweet wish of the whole thing of trying to, a, a fantasy where what if you could warn people there's something beautiful about that and there's something tragic about that at the same time. And I think those tones work really well in the movie. Mm. My, no, my only, my only, I guess my only thought on that is, is animation itself as a metaphorical kind of symbolic yeah, medium yeah. because it is fundamentally rhetorical and an enunciative in that if, if you ask somebody, you know, ask, a, ask somebody, a child to, to draw an apple, they will they will draw something that is sort of an apple is what we collectively believe it to be. So they've just drawn what they what they what they lean on is this universal apple thing. 
this Appleness. And so this has been used as a way of thinking about animation as fundamentally rhetorical um, because it commits to the idea of the thing by virtue of the fact that it yeah. draws the thing. And it has to assert the thing into being, right? Yeah. By, by, um, so without it, because without it, the page would be blank. Yeah. So uh, people would argue that animation is kind of at its core metaphorical because it's never the thing. It's only ever about the thing. It's only ever symbolic of the thing because it's a drawing of an apple, not an apple. So it becomes symbolic in, in its level of materiality, let's say. So in this case, the whole film is, is, has that kind of metaphorical quality by just virtue of the fact it's, it's animated. It becomes not in the, not in the same way, but there's, I think there's a, a level to the way that we can understand the kind of political or allegorical potential of, of fantasy. And when it's an animated fantasy, there's a sort of level of the whole film is a comment on something because otherwise the pages would be would be blank. That's my only kind of my only kind of thought on that. And that that's one of the things that animation and fantasy share. They're often considered <laughs> symbolic. In but, different but, kinds but I guess of to ways. take that one step further, the way the film then uses yeah. that to sort of assert this kind of cataclysmic event, the use of depth. We haven't talked about depth, but I've written that down loads of times in my notes. Like depth. you know, well, just the you know the, the, the just depth. Uh, and and no, well, back to paradox. The paradox of using technology and digital technology yeah. in a way to assert depth in a really beautiful way to tell some, to augment some of the thematic themes whilst telling a story that has an ambivalent relationship to technology. It's all folded in there. I mean, mm. um, I know the BFI showed this film in IMAX, isn't it? I didn't have an opportunity to see it, but like that, that embrace of technology allows this film to spectacularize this trauma in a, in a really interesting way. So yeah, yeah, great question. Thank you. Um, do we have any more questions? Final. Go for it. Yeah. So I've watched some a lot of Shinkai's films told by the BFI, and um, one of the uh, motifs in sense to recognise, would you say is um, both distancing and connection? So the distancing yes. in time, the connection made by um, either technology or musubi, the, the use of unions, um, and, and this isn't just for, from, from your name, there's um, uh, Garden of Words or um, either uh, Weathering View, and some of the... The place promised on our early years. Yeah. The place promised in our own. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that one kind of um, yeah. distance between space and um, another one distance with um, uh, illness, yet still having um, connections via cell phone, because it's obviously a form of um, connecting with others. Yeah. And that's what um, Tucky and Mitsuhara tend to do during the, um, uh, the time they body swap. So they write diaries, they leave notes for each other. Yeah. And Smitar calls him um, of all thou when he's being um, yeah. Mr. Videra. And um, what, what what are your opinions on um, that particular motif? Yes. Yes. No. I think. Thank you. Um, one of the ways that anime, yeah, has been kind of theorised is is same same with animation. Animation isn't a, a genre, but it has these genres. And what are the genres of anime? Uh, and they're often kind of three from Napier's book, which is there. Um, three uh, the um, ap apocalyptic, um, the festival. And then kind of the, the mournful, let's say. And I think in the way that you're talking, I think absolutely, I think his work would fit more within a sort of mournful, a mournful element to, to or a more, the mournful genre, let's say, the elegiac um, genre of, of anime. Almost the frustration, I mean, your name, it, it's about connection, but it's the kind of frustration of not being able, these characters, we use this term a lot, like this uh, kind of oil and water, like trying to mix, but never quite, never quite mixing. And I feel that way with some of the ways that the film uses the two characters, that they both 
very rarely do they occupy the same shot or are allowed to occupy the same shot. And there's always a kind of frustration or a partition, especially at the end where they're on these trains going in kind of opposite directions. And they, so there's always a partition, or and that partition is kind of literal in the in the way that they have to navigate through this modern space, but also I would say kind of yeah. symbolic or temporal. So I would say that this film, I guess, almost again folds that kind of quality into or intensifies those kinds of qualities because it is about um, characters that are so close that they occupy each other's bodies but never close enough and I think that's what I kind of yeah. I suppose that's how I'd see the, the, the way that the film play it uses rhythm and time and, and all the things that we talked about to play with connection in its absence and shots where there are characters who aren't there but are trying to have these conversations and maybe yeah that folds into that question about kind of intimacy Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, great questions and, and God, we could, you know, the, it's a film that opens these kind of, you know, lots of different thoughts and yeah. they're really interesting to think about. And I'm, I, it's a film I need to watch loads more times um, other than the dozens or so times I've already seen it. So, um, yeah, really, really terrific talk to you all. Uh, thank you very much for coming. And if you're interested in what we did and want to check out uh, past episodes uh, with Fantasy Animation, we're available on all your favourite podcasting subscription services and you can find us at fantasy-animation.org and via social media, via Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. Um, otherwise, thank you very much. Thanks.